The world doesn't like Christians. In fact, it hates Christians, at least faithful ones. And we'd rather it not be true, but it is true. Uh, we'd rather be loved, but if we're faithful to Christ, we can't expect uh, love from the world. But, brothers and sisters, we don't need it. After all, Jesus satisfies us with his love. The world hates Christians, at least faithful ones. If there's any doubt, test it out. How does the world think of you when you hold the Bible's sex ethic? Believe marriage is one man and one woman for life. Believe homosexuality and transgenderism are not God's best, but are actually harmful for human beings made in his image. How does the world think of you when you simply call abortion for what it is, murder, and make the case that mothers do not have the right to murder their unborn children? How does the world think of you when you agree with Romans 13 and, and say that police are servants of God, avengers who carry out God's wrath on wrongdoers, and that police should not only be funded adequately, but should be respected and obeyed in society? How does the world think of you when you believe that the Bible is God's word, Jesus is the only way to heaven, all other world religions are false and condemned by God, Darwinism is bad science, and the like? Does the world like people who think that way? Here's my point. The world doesn't like Christians, but that's okay. Because our compassionate God will care for us along the way and give us eternal life in the end. So be faithful to Christ where he put you. We continue in the second major discourse of Jesus in Matthew. He's preparing his apostles to take the gospel first to the Jews and then to the nations. As you listen in, his speech doesn't seem immediately inspiring. We might think Jesus should have been a bit more upbeat. Uh, but downplaying the offense of the gospel and sugarcoating the Christian life is dishonest at best. Jesus didn't sugarcoat things for broader appeal. He spoke truth, and then he equipped his people to suffer for it unto eternal life. A couple years ago, Anheuser-Busch ran a funny commercial for Bud Light titled Ye Old Pep Talk. It's uh, set in the Middle Ages. The battle's about to begin. A little army of ill-equipped villagers faces a massive and fully equipped army, which have them somewhat cornered, and they look apprehensive as their king, mounted on his steed, tries to motivate them for war. Men, women, dilly-dilly. And they timidly respond, dilly-dilly. Sure, we might be outnumbered, 20 to 1. They may have more men, more horses, and their horses may be faster and more intelligent than ours. And the camera hits a little horse who turns its head at the comment. They have arrows with fire, which uh, probably don't hurt more than regular ones. And unlike them, we have very little training. Um, and the villagers are looking at each other very anxiously as the king clearly does not have the right words for the moment. And then the king says, look, I'm going to level with you guys. We're out of Bud Light. And the villagers perk up and the king adds, and they have some, so dilly dilly to which the now-spirited army yells, dilly-dilly, as they fearlessly storm the enemy, yelling out cries of war. 
bravery, sacrifice, perseverance through impossible odds arise out of the goodness and the glory of the mission. Forget the dumb beer commercial. The mission of preaching the gospel to the nations is daunting, but also supremely good and glorious. And so, bravery, sacrifice, perseverance, and suffering are demanded and handsomely rewarded. Jesus wasn't dampening the spirits of his apostles. He was readying them. There is comfort and strength here in his words. Jesus gave it straight. That's one of the things I love about him. Pain was coming, but comfort filled his words. Now, the world may hate us, brothers and sisters, on account of Christ, but the cost is small considering we will be glorified with Christ. Asking people to sacrifice and suffer as Jesus did is good, uh, but only because the reward is greater than the cost. The apostles really were sheep amidst wolves, but that was okay because their good shepherd would care for them body and soul along the dangerous way and bless them tremendously at the end. Our comfort as sheep surrounded by wolves is, number one, Jesus will give us wisdom and innocence. Jesus will give us wisdom and innocence. Jesus had already given his apostles considerable comfort. He gave them his authority. He, had, he, he said that some people would receive them well and provide for them. He said God would judge those who rejected them. All that was comfort. Then verse 16, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Have you seen what a wolf can do to a sheep? I looked it up on YouTube. It's horrible. It's absolutely horrible. Uh, as the wolves are clamping on their necks, the sheep are kicking their legs and making this unsettling sound similar to a human wailing in pain. It's striking. When you watch and you listen with this verse in mind, it's quite sobering. Wolves don't treat sheep nicely, not kindly. So Jesus said, therefore, be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Serpents were seen as aware and shrewd creatures. So the apostles needed to use good sense to be smart, avoiding danger when possible. Their lives mattered. In verse 23, Jesus tells them to flee persecution, and I find it interesting that even Jesus on occasion escaped the, the crowd, but eventually submitted to the cross. Doves are innocent. Calvin said, doves fly in their simplicity, imagine themselves safe till they are struck and in most cases, place themselves within the reach of the fowler's snares. And so the idea is, be wise, be sensible, but be peacefully bold and don't hide in fear. Freely do what I'm sending you out to do with the peace of God's protection. That's the idea. Jesus would be their wisdom and innocence. And Jesus used the same word for wise Back in Matthew 7, 24, where he told them this, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them 
will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Wisdom. Amidst danger, Jesus would be their wisdom and innocence. His teaching would guide them. The world doesn't like Christians, but that's okay. Because our faithful Savior, Jesus, is our wisdom and innocence. And so when the road is hard, our greatest comfort then in the journey is knowing um, that Jesus loves us, that Jesus is with us, and that Jesus provides us wisdom and innocence, even valor. Number two, Jesus is advancing his gospel and building his church in all the world. The apostles went out with the authority of Jesus. That's important to remember. Jesus would work in and through their ministry. Of what Jesus wanted to do in the world, he chose to do through them. And that was comforting. Verses 17 and 18. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Again, they needed to be careful. Uh, Jesus warned, beware of men. But even in their caution, two painful things were sure to happen. First, Jewish leaders would oppose them. The, the synagogue, uh, the, the synagogues which were all over, they were Jewish houses of worship and learning. But, interestingly, they were also places of discipline. And so Jewish courts administered flogging. They lashed people with whips in synagogues. One scholar noted this. One man would read passages of scripture, a second would count the strokes, and a third would give the command before each stroke. There could be as many as 39 strokes, but no more in a Jewish synagogue. Not only would the Jews oppose the apostles and their gospel, but governors, kings, and Gentiles, people similar to Pilate and Herod, would oppose them as well. And folks, I don't know about you, that's threatening. That's, that's scary stuff. But God had a good purpose for their pain. Look again at verse 18. For my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. To bear witness to what? To bear witness to the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Salvation in Christ for the Jew first, but also for the Greek. Jesus told them earlier in verse 7, and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They were hated and mistreated for Christ's sake. And Christ would care for them along the way and bless them in the end for their pain. So do you realize what Jesus was doing here in these verses? Let's, let's make some Old Testament connections here. God promised Abraham long before in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. In Jesus, the son of Abraham, the nations would be blessed. And here, Jesus, the son of Abraham, is ensuring that the gospel of the kingdom of God reached the nations despite the opposition and brutality. 
God's people were out there among the nations, and Jesus had a plan to reach them through the ministry of the church. The sacrifice and suffering of the church in the world that hates them is evidence of the love of Christ. Even more, the love of Christ is reinforced for those sacrificing and suffering because they sacrifice and suffer in solidarity with Jesus Christ, their Lord. And that is true comfort for God's people. Number three, Jesus is providing for our needs. Jesus said, verse 19, when they deliver you, over. And it's the same word in verse 17. The, ap the apostles would be delivered over. Inevitable. And what might have been their tendency in hearing that? To worry. Right? To worry. None of this sounds good. Uh, I used to be in sales, and in sales, most of the time people say no. And, and when you need the sales, like I did, no's are not easy to hear. I used to lay in my warm bed because I just didn't want to go out into my territory. I just was scared to go out there. And so opposition has a way of vexing the soul. Jesus prepared his apostles for inevitable pain and injustice. He made it clear that brutality was coming. Now Jesus wanted them, and, and, and listen closely here, Jesus wanted them to have a certain kind of concern or anxiety, the good kind, which makes them alert and cautious. He did say, be wise as serpents and innocent as doves, beware of men. He wanted them to have a healthy fear and concern, but not an excessive preoccupation with what to say. Verse 19, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. Jesus addressed worry uh, or anxiety uh, back in, over necessities back in chapter 6. And so here he's addressing worry or anxiety again, except over what they would say before courts and leaders, powerful leaders. And the idea was be wise, be innocent. Beware of men, but do not worry over what to say because God will provide you the words. Instead of worrying, they were to trust in God's providence that their father would care for them and provide for them in their time of need. Now, where do I get that? Verse 19, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. That that phrase right there was gospel, meant to alleviate their anxiety and comfort their hearts as they anticipated difficult trials. Now, in my experience, much of my anxiety is anticipating future trouble without trusting in God's providence. That's me. I worry about what's coming and struggle to concentrate on God's providence and provision. Trusting in God's providence alleviates anxiety, much anxiety. Jesus promised them God's provision of the Spirit for future trials. Look at verse 20. 
For, and that's a word that's very important because it connects you back to what he's been saying. For, it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. That was a comfort to the apostles. It would be okay for them. They, they would not need to muster up the strength and eloquence from themselves because the Spirit would work in and through them. Their Father would provide. They would rely, as Calvin said, on heavenly grace. And that needed to be their focus. The promise of Christ was intended to fortify their faith and alleviate their anxiety so that they could freely focus on Christ and advancing his mission in the world. Jesus was serving them with this. Now, why did Jesus say, Spirit of your Father? That, this is the only place that that name appears. Might Jesus have been reminding the apostles that they belong to God as his beloved and adopted sons, that they were indeed co-heirs with Christ, that they would never be alone, but that their caring father would be with them and would provide for them along the very hard way. Father is a well-placed title of comfort for men heading into suffering for Christ. Father. And to say that the Spirit of the Father would speak through them is to draw attention to their unique office and role as apostles. This is what theologians call inspiration. The apostles would speak the very authoritative words of Christ, of God, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Jesus raised up apostles to bear witness to Christ, to preserve the gospel in the world, to make sure that that message, true and pure, got to the nations. As an aside, inspiration is why we believe the Bible and stake our eternity on believing all of it. So when we suffer for Christ, brothers and sisters, it sure is good to know that our loving Father will provide for us His grace and His Spirit on the hard way to eternal life. It sure is good to have the apostolic testimony to Christ in sacred scripture. Our comfort as sheep surrounded by wolves is, number four, Jesus will preserve us by His grace and Spirit unto eternal life with Him. Verses 21 and 22 are deeply sorrowful verses. I think it's helpful that we actually consider what this is saying and maybe put ourselves in that position. How would this feel? But in the ultimate sense, as sorrowful as they are, they are wonderful and reassuring verses for believers. Brother will deliver brother over to death. That's painful. And the father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. This is how much, saints, the world hates Jesus and his followers. Scripture teaches that human nature, apart from saving grace, is inclined to hate God and everyone else, even the closest family. We need to be clear about pe who people truly are apart from Christ. Now, there is nothing, excuse me, nothing in all of the world that I love more than my family, my 
my wife, my children, my brother and sister, my parents. I love them deeply. But apart from Christ, I am capable of destroying them all. Human nature is brutal, ruthless, fierce, because it wants nothing more than to rebel against God and serve self. All the atrocities and injustices of our world, and we're seeing some, are done out of hatred of Christ. Verse 21 gives a horrific glimpse into what rebellion against Christ can become. Make no mistake, Jesus is polarizing. He divides loved ones. Later in chapter 10, Jesus teaches his apostles, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. What do we do with that? He didn't come to bring peace to the earth. He said, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Hussein Muhammad was a Muslim man in Egypt. He converted to Christianity. He posted pictures on Facebook which confirmed his Christian faith. His Muslim family killed him for converting. Some call this kind of homicide honor killing. Honor killing. When Jesus told his apostles, you will be hated by all on account of me, he was not overstating it. The hatred would be so intense, so fierce, so brutal, it would rip families apart. Now, what did Jesus mean by all? Hated by all. Would every single person hate the apostles? No. That can't be what it means. That would mean that no one would provide for the apostles, no one would believe the apostles, and Jesus would save absolutely no one. Here, all does not mean every single person. Here, all means unbelieving Jews and Gentiles, all peoples, the world. Unbelievers, the, the, the world will hate the apostles on account of Christ. Identify with Jesus and the world will hate you. In other words, all will hate you. Now, living in the U.S., if we can just... Think about them preaching to United States citizens. Living in the U.S. has provided us a certain refuge from many outward expressions of this hate. But the undercurrent of hate is most certainly in the United States. Believe the Bible, hold to historic Christian doctrine, live the true Christian life as defined in Scripture, and the world will hate you even here in the U.S. Why? Because the world doesn't know God, and they hate Jesus, and they hate everyone who follows Jesus. The hatred may be suppressed for various reasons, but be not deceived, brothers and sisters, the hatred is there. Advance to the night before the cross in the upper room and hear Jesus tell these same men, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But 
because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. They don't know God. Brothers and sisters, how can we endure this hatred? It, this is a very difficult passage. I don't like the idea of being hated. One of the things I struggle with so deeply, this gets in the way of my ministry, this is a confession of sin, is the fear of man, a people pleaser, wanting to just keep everybody happy. Here's what helped the apostles to endure this hatred and what will help us look to the reward. Look to the promise of reward. Do you remember what Jesus told these these men in the Sermon on the Mount, right after talking about persecution, Jesus told them, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And here in verse 22, Jesus tells them, But the one who endures to the end will be saved. That was massive incentive for enduring suffering on account of Christ. Since sacrificing and suffering for Christ ends with salvation, with eternal life, with God, sacrifice and suffering are entirely worth it. Jesus preserves his people by his grace and spirit, and in the end, he gives his people eternal life. Eternal life. Eternal salvation. Paul told Timothy, if we endure, if we endure, we will also reign with him. And believers find that entirely worth it. That's attractive. That makes us want to continue. Knowing that the world hates Christians, obviously compromise is a big, is a big temptation for us. One foot in the world, one foot in the church. Hey, maybe we can do that right by making everybody happy. Can't be done. Cannot be done. We can't. Compromise? Compromise is a big temptation. But brothers and sisters, there's another temptation. Withdraw from the world and let it burn. J.C. Ryle said, If we let the world alone, it will probably let us alone. But if we try to do its spiritual good, it will hate us as it did our master. If we try to do its spiritual good, it will hate us as it did our master. The temptation can be to withdraw and to do the world no spiritual good. Just keep your mouth shut. Just don't say anything. Don't serve them because it might do A, B, or C. Let's just be hermits. Let's take our church to the moon, as Sarah Groves sings. But why would we withdraw our true love from the world when our master promises us eternal life upon enduring to the end? Brothers and sisters, we are the light of the world. 
We are the light of the world. We must help each other endure the hatred by helping each other remember the reward of our master. This is very important for us to encourage one another in these times. When you go out there and get kicked, your teeth get kicked in, you come back here and you have people who are proud of you, who can lift you up, who are saying, yes, I know how it feels because we're going to support one another. This is real. We need this more than we all think we do. Five. Jesus is the Son of Man. Verse 23. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly, I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Now, let's just be precise here. Jesus gave this to his apostles. These are commands to the apostles. This is for the apostles in the first century. Jesus sent the apostles out to preach the gospel of the kingdom, and they needed to be wise and innocent, to beware of men, and to sometimes flee persecution. Never compromise, but sometimes flee. Eventually, most of them would be killed for the gospel. They didn't hide as hermits, but they did sometimes flee. Now, verse 23 could be an entire sermon series. Uh, it is a tough passage to understand. What did Jesus mean by before the Son of Man comes? First, I'm not entirely sure. And second, I'm not going to say much. But here is what I'll say. Jesus taught this as he sent his apostles out, first to the Jews and eventually to the Gentiles. In verse 23, the coming of the Son of Man most naturally seems to happen during the lives of the apostles during the mission which was beginning here. That seems to be most natural. So I think Jesus is referring to his coming in glory as the victorious king while the apostles are still alive and not finished with the mission. So in the cross and empty tomb, we see the glory of Christ, our victorious and risen Savior and King. It's the already, but the not yet. Jesus showed himself the, the conquering King in the cross and resurrection, but the fullness of the consummation of the kingdom would come at his second coming. Now, I, I really don't want to lose you here, but perhaps this will help. Austin Brown from the Gentle Reformation blog paraphrases it like this. When they persecute you, don't waste your time there. Move on. Go to the next city. Time is of the essence. In fact, the Son of Man is so at hand, which you know means the coming of the kingdom of God, it's going to arrive before all the cities are covered. And Austin adds, and when Jesus rose victorious, it happened. Jesus brought the kingdom of God through his sacrifice and suffering on the cross, and as he emerged from the tomb alive, he was king of kings. So after the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension, the gospel had yet to reach all the towns of Israel. It was after Christ's ascension that persecution picked up considerably. They endured persecution after Jesus came in the glory of his cross and resurrection, which I think fits the passage. 
Do I have it exactly right? Not sure. You can tell me afterwards where I have it wrong. But let's not miss that Jesus is the Son of Man who comes. And that's comforting. He is the Son of Man promised in Daniel 7, the one to whom God grants everlasting dominion, glory, an indestructible kingdom, and the servitude of the nations. Whatever Jesus' exact meaning, the apostles would have been comforted by the promise of the coming of the glory of Jesus, the Son of Man. They would see his coming glory. So whatever you make of verse 23, make much of Jesus, the Son of Man, and find comfort in his coming glory. Six. Jesus is making us like him, and that is enough for us. Verses 24 and 25 contain words that Jesus said at other times. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher, and the slave like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? First, I think that really humbled the, the apostles. They were not greater than Jesus. Second, it rationalized their uh, receiving hatred in the world. Jesus, their teacher, their master, their great one, was mistreated first. Third, it encouraged them that their suffering meant their inseparable bond with Jesus Christ the King. They would not escape persecution altogether for their master was hated. Beelzebul is like calling Jesus Satan. But it would be enough for them to simply be like him, to be like their teacher, like their master. What a comfort. The world hates Christians, but it's okay. Because our teacher, our master, our prophet, priest, and king, our savior, our Lord, our God, is making us like him in the suffering. Is there anything more desirable than being made like Jesus? Now the Heidelberg says that we belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to our faithful savior, Jesus Christ, because he purchased us. A master is the owner of slaves. Jesus is our master. He owns us. He bought us with his blood. And not only that, he loves us so much that he is actually working to conform us to his glorious image. And that is enough for us. To be made like him is enough for us. This alone makes sacrificing and suffering on account of Christ completely worth it. It's worth it. Whatever ill we experience in this life, and it might come in, in various ways, he experienced it first and to a much greater extent, and so our suffering for Christ actually confirms for us that we belong to him, that he loves us, that he's caring for us, that he's making us like himself, and, and this is the comfort when we're being hated because of Jesus. If we're not hated by the world, it should unsettle us. That, that should not bring comfort. That should not make us comfortable. These two verses were for the apostles, but I believe that they are true in application in, in, in a certain sense to every true believer as well. In all that the apostles were to face, it was enough for them to be made like Jesus. And brothers and sisters, when the world hates us and comes upon it, it makes us feel like freaks. Like we have another head growing out or something. And, and it is enough for us in those moments to know that we're identifying with him and being made like him. 
7. Jesus was hated, opposed, marginalized, and maligned by the world. And when we are as well, brothers and sisters, on account of him, it confirms that we belong to him. Calvin said, Nothing, therefore, can be more unreasonable than to wish to be accounted believers and yet to murmur against God when he conforms us to the image of his son, whom he has placed over all his family. End quote. Being conformed to Christ is uncomfortable, painful even. But if we truly want to be counted disciples of Christ, and I trust that we do, then we must not grumble when God actually conforms us to Christ. We, we should rejoice even in the pain. Because of what he's doing for us and in us, it is enough to be made like him. What did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? And I'll just ask a question here. Do we actually believe Jesus? Do we? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. Celebrate. Party with one another, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The world doesn't like Christians. The world hates Christians. But that's okay. It's okay because our compassionate God will care for us along the way and give us eternal life in the end. So, dear brother and sister, be faithful where Christ put you. Be faithful where Christ put you, no matter the cost. When you live for Jesus, you will encounter painful things because of Jesus. And that should comfort and assure you and actually help you persevere because you belong to him. And it's so tempting to think that we can live for Jesus and also gain the world's love. I mean, I'm probably the best at believing that lie. That seems more immediately comfortable for us like, like it would be better if that was the case. But I promise you, if you are faithful to Christ, you will have pain because of Christ. But I also promise you that as you endure, you will be saved by him and receive unfathomable blessings from him as well. And in the end, eternal life. Eternal life. We must be faithful in what our master is calling us to do, whatever the cost, for his reward of grace is great. Have we actually listened to the Apostle Paul and found comfort in his words? Romans 8, 13 through 17, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And please hear what Paul adds. Provided we suffer with him 
in order that we may also be glorified with him. We must suffer with Christ to be glorified with Christ. To be hated on account of Christ is blessing because it means we will soon be glorified with him. So brothers and sisters, let the world hate us. Let the world hate us. We have a greater joy, a greater comfort, a greater possession. We have the kingdom. The kingdom is ours because we belong to the king who has given it to us, who are hated for his sake. 